This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Memes, The Guardian's regular Brexit podcast, and I'm John Henley. In this episode, we're going to be looking at one particular industry, and a relatively small one at that. Fishing generates maybe half a percent of Britain's GDP, and it's shrunk dramatically since the UK joined the EU. In the early 70s, there were more than 20,000 UK fishermen landing nearly a million tonnes of fish, against around 12,000 landing just 400,000 tonnes in recent years. But that's, of course, one reason why fishing is a very big Brexit deal. For half a century, the EU's common fisheries policy has dictated where British boats can fish, how much they can catch, and it's given EU fishermen access to British waters. British fishermen, frustrated and angered by fishing quotas, argue the EU has basically crippled their industry, and they were among the most vocal backers of Brexit during the referendum campaign. But there's another reason that fishing is very important to Brexit. It's a very symbolic business. It's about borders, it's about territorial waters, about nationhood, about statehood. It's about red lines that you can draw on a map or at least on a marine chart. In ways that other nations are not, it's a very demonstrable expression of that leave mantra of taking back control. So Leave campaigners licked their lips at the idea of taking back control of UK fishing waters. And fishing became something of a mascot for the whole Brexit campaign. Do you remember Nigel Farage sailing up the Thames in a blaze of publicity at the head of that flotilla of fishing boats? But there are a few catches, if you'll pardon the pun. And perhaps the biggest one of them is this – Two-thirds of the fish that we eat in Britain comes from non-EU waters. And most of the fish that the UK fleet actually catches is exported mostly to the EU. So the trade of fish is likely to be every bit as important as the catching of it when it comes to sorting out the final Brexit deal. 
Plus, as I think we're about to discover, coordinating the fisheries policies of 28 different countries is a very tricky business. Fishing rights date back decades, if not centuries, and there's a very strong chance that a relatively small, if symbolically significant, sector could become just a pawn in the infinitely bigger Brexit negotiations. In other words, it's really not going to be easy. So, joining me to discuss what the future looks like for the British fishing industry are three very expert guests. Andrew Kike, who's here representing the UK Seafood Industry Alliance, who are basically the processing and trading companies. Fiona Harvey, who's The Guardian's environment correspondent. And Barry Dees, who's chief executive of the National Federation of Fishermen's Organisations. I'd like to start with you, Barry, if that's OK. Is it all about taking back control? I think the place to start is the beginning. The beginning is when the UK entered the what was then the EEC. And in a nutshell, the existing member states ambushed the UK on fishing in terms of the access terms, access to the EEC. They made it a precondition that the principle of equal access, giving their vessels equal access to our waters, was uh, written into the treaties. And that has applied ever since. What that means is that it has denied us in the UK the ability to act as an independent coastal state in the way that, for instance, Norway or or Iceland pharaohs uh, have. Um, And we have been subject to a highly centralised Brussels-based system that even those in Brussels acknowledge has been less than totally successful. Where we are now, um, Brexit, the referendum came along and there's an opportunity to break out of that set of arrangements. It might be a, a bit of a side effect to the main effects of, of Brexit, but it's extremely important for British fishermen who see this as an opportunity. We quite agree with your introduction in terms of, of trade. Fishing is a bit different. Access to waters and quotas are fundamental. We share about 138, 140 stocks with other countries. So this isn't about moving away from shared management where where we have shared stocks, but it is about access terms, who fishes in UK waters, under what conditions, um, and crucially important, the shares that we have. I mean, to take the most extreme, Channel Cod, uh, the UK share is 9%, the French share is 84%. um, And that means for 20-odd years, British fishermen in uh, mixed fisheries in the Channel have been forced to discard cod because they haven't had enough quota and that's the opportunity that we see with brexit it's an ability to certainly control our own waters i think that happens by default simply by leaving the the eu and the cfp but uh, addressing the access arrangements and the quota shares and um, yeah i think that's that's really where we are at the moment uh, andrew is that compatible with the interests of trading and and the processing industry Uh, i think in the classic answer yes and no (laughs) Um, we could spend a long time on the history um, and barry and i have known each other a long time and shared quite a lot of that history i would like to start in a slightly different place fish is an intrinsically renewable resource it's a natural source of protein it's a healthy food And depending on the fishing method, it's relatively low carbon. So it ticks a lot of boxes, healthy, sustainable, 
if properly managed? And that, of course, is the central question, the proper management. As you've hinted, the CFP has had a rather chequered history. It certainly started out life as a policy to do with resource allocation rather than resource conservation. And it was only at the sort of second and third reforms that serious conservation and sustainability measures began to be put in place. I think the one thing um, you've already highlighted that we we currently import about two thirds of what we eat. Um, That is partly uh, a function of the history, but it's also consumer choice. The species that people buy are by and large species that are not abundant in our own waters, tuna and warm water prawns being an obvious example of that. Um, Depending on what happens in the Brexit negotiations to quota shares, it is possible that we will have more shares of things like cod and haddock, but that is not going to transform that basic dependency on imported supplies to meet consumer demand. And I think everybody in the industry, be they processor or capture, the market is the one thing that should unite us all. Because if we do not have consumers wanting to buy the product, there isn't an industry. And I think we all need to be very mindful that consumers for a long time have been conscious of the failings of conservation and some of the political disputes that have led to quotas being set at higher levels than the scientists recommend. For me, the fundamental, whatever happens on the politics of this, and it's going to be controversial and it's going to be difficult, but the baby we mustn't throw out with the bathwater is consumer confidence that fishery stocks are properly and sustainably managed by whoever ends up managing them. Because if we lose consumer confidence, if we undermine the trust that's been built up, uh, we will lose the market and we will lose the industry. Mm. So from my perspective, um, that sort of primary emphasis on making sure that whatever we do, we enhance the reputation and sustainability of good fisheries management. And the UK could contribute enormously. I'm not disputing that uh, the UK might be able to improve on what has been done in recent years under the common fisheries policy. But it will be vital that we maintain those markets and indeed grow those markets. Because if we manage fish stocks sustainably, the resource will actually grow. The cake gets bigger. Mm. So rather than fighting about who gets particular slices, if we can all grow the cake, then there's more to go around for everyone. And fish, come back to the point, is a very healthy Mm. source of protein. Mm. And it's something, particularly oily fish, omega-3, all that, it's something that people should be encouraged to eat more of. And one reason people don't is because they're concerned that they might be contributing to overfishing by doing so. So we need to absolutely get that point Make that, that whatever priority. else we do, we are doing it responsibly and sustainably. Mm. Fiona, I guess you'll agree with that. Is I mean, I mean, one of the big points here, obviously, I mean, it's it's it, it, it's obvious, but I guess it bears repeating, is that fish clearly don't respect national boundaries. Um, that means that you need international agreements. How easy, from a conservation point of view, is uh, is it to to reach agreements on uh, like this, on this kind of conservation? And how effectively or ineffectively has the EU's common fisheries policy been at, at doing that? 
Well, it's incredibly difficult to divide this up because, as you say, fish uh, don't know about international boundaries and so they quite happily cross them. Um, And, in fact, we're seeing um, fish move around even more because of the effects of climate change. Uh, So we're seeing uh, fish appearing in in UK waters that we wouldn't have seen before. We're also seeing a fluctuation in some of the the stocks. Um, We've seen recently North Sea cod come back on the menu uh, because those stocks have recovered. Um, But that's still uh, quite fragile um, and that could easily be lost again. Um, And stocks of some other fish uh, are not doing so well. Um, So the the picture out there at the moment uh, is quite mixed and and quite difficult. And if you look around the world, we're doing very, very badly on fish. Mm. We have been overfishing uh, for decades and globally, a lot of key fish stocks uh, are now nearly on the point of collapse. Mm. Um, And that's very serious because we don't eat enough fish in the UK. Um, Fish is a a very, very healthy food. In fact, it's essential for a healthy brain. Um, But in other countries, um, fish is the major source of protein. Um, And so when you look globally, we are in in very dire straits. Um, So we've got to take account of of that picture. Um, And then also we need to look at the kind of practices that we use for fishing, because some of them are are extraordinarily damaging. I mean, one of the characteristics of the common common fisheries (laughs) policy is that uh, we uh, end up discarding uh, a lot of fish for one reason or another. And these are healthy fish that could be eaten. So throwing them back into the water where they die uh, is clearly extremely wasteful. Um, But there are other damaging practices. I mean, for instance, some of our fishing gear uh, actually catches juvenile fish uh, when ideally it would it would let them go um, and that's a problem as well we've got problems with practices like dredging uh, particularly for things like uh, scallops and uh, bottom dwelling fish and that's a very damaging practice because you end up sort of tearing up the seabed which mm. tears up all of that life which takes a long time to recover we don't need to do that there are other methods but they're more expensive so, Barry, is that? I mean, do, do, do the, does the British fishing industry see Brexit as an opportunity uh, to to do something about that and and to change fishing methods as well? Yeah, certainly, there's a lot in there. The first thing to say is um, globally we might be in a dire strait, but in terms of the the north, the whole of the northeast Atlantic, and in terms of all of the main species groups. We were in a desperate state in the 1990s, and then there was a turning point around about the year 2000. And you see fishing mortality, fishing pressure falling dramatically off, and you see the stocks coming up, some of them spectacularly like uh, North Sea Place or Hake. And uh, some of them are responding more slowly, and that needs particular attention. But the overall picture in in the CFP and and beyond in the northeast Atlantic is a good one, it's a positive one. Things are going in the right direction. Large-scale discarding was a function of the common fisheries policy and aspects of the quota regime. But actually, over the last 20 years, if you look at the North Sea groundfish fishery, discards had been reduced by 90%, 90%. So it's it's not as though nothing was being done. Uh, We certainly need to do more. Mm. But I don't see that um, moving from the common fisheries policy to a different set of international management uh, arrangements jeopardises that. It oughtn't to. I mean, for instance, in the North Sea, we'll be working with Norway and the EU. And the EU will 
in, in territory terms, uh, represent about 20% of what's left. It's Norway and the UK will be the big players. Norway's a very responsible fishing nation, and I expect that the UK will be too. So, um, yes, things will be different. The governance arrangements, the institutional arrangements, where decisions are made, quota decisions won't be made uh, at the December Council and the, and the laborious co-decision process. They'll be made through international negotiations. But we already have a model of that in the way that EU works with Norway at the moment. So, there's a job of work to be done, certainly, but I don't see this as a threat to conservation uh, or, or, or um, sensible management arrangements. But you definitely see the British fishing industry's place as being outside the, the CFP. That will happen uh, simply by default. When we leave the EU, we leave the common fisheries policy, we automatically become an independent coastal state like Norway. Then we have to have different arrangements to manage shared stocks. Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that uh, we uh, and I think this is certainly the legal situation. Is is we leave, we leave the EU, we leave the CFP. Andrew, what are the consequences of that, or are there direct consequences from that from your side of the uh, of the industry? What what is the relationship in Brussels terms or in the EU terms, as you can see it, between the the, the common fisheries policy and the trade in fish, the, the access that British fishermen might have to, the, to those vital EU markets? I think the short answer is it's not very clear at the moment. Um, we are part of a single market. We trade without tariffs in, uh, in all areas, and that includes fish, other foodstuffs, farming, as well as pharmaceuticals and cars and everything else. That free trade regime in the single market is separate from the provisions of the common fisheries policy. Um, interestingly, for countries like Norway and Iceland that are in the European Economic Area, the EEA, although they have access to the single market through that, mm. they do not have access on the same terms for agriculture and fisheries products. There are more protectionist arrangements in place. So that's a, a sort of a historical uh, anomaly. But so on the assumption that we leave the common fisheries policy when we leave the EU, um, what happens to the trade arrangements will depend what happens in the trade negotiation chapter of our future relationship. Are we not afraid that there'll be an attempt by the EU to kind of bundle the two together and make it all part of the same package? Well, that is possible. I mean, as they say, this is something for negotiation. But legally, uh, the provisions governing, governing trade do not form part of the, the, the basic regulation, the common market organisation, the other instruments of the common fisheries policy. And conceptually, uh, the question of who has rights to fish in what, what waters and what shares of a total allowable catch, those are completely separate issues from the terms of trade, either in that mm. fish or other fish from outside the EU. That's a question of tariffs, um, which is a, a question of a separate regime. The extent to which those get uh, merged or cross-referenced in any negotiation will be for the negotiators. Mm. Mm. So at this stage, it's impossible to say quite how this will develop. Barry, how do you see that playing out? I mean, it, how important is tariff-free access to those? Uh, which of the countries of France, Germany, the Netherlands that, that British fishermen mainly sell to? How important is continued tariff-free 
access to those markets going to be? Trade is important, I mean, for things like crab, lobster, shellfish in, in particular, but, but a lot of the whitefish species um, and pelagic species as well. Um, so it's no point pretending that it's not important. But I agree with that, uh, Andrew. I think um, this is going to be uh, determined by the bigger picture. Uh, fish will probably get what it gets in terms of a trade agreement. Um, I, I, I would be um, surprised if the EU side didn't try to make a link between uh, fishing arrangements on access and quotas um, to trade. But legally, um, I don't think there is a link. Um, and I think uh, this is an area where the UK um, has to be quite robust and say, well, we are, we are going in our direction. The trade arrangements will be what their trade arrangements will be. Mm. Yeah. Can I just come back on and uh, not want you to be un, unduly provocative? <laughs> I think we're being a little bit binary about when we leave the EU, we leave the common fisheries policy. When we leave the EU, those treaty provisions will cease to apply, but we will have the choice that there may be bits of that that we still want well, to that, continue. Well, this is clearly a, a possibility, isn't it? It's one option. Uh, if, if the, I mean, the British government has already made clear that in several other areas of the economy, it's looking for kind of sector by sector deals. And there's been a lot of talk recently about kind of, you know, associate agreements with or associate membership of various different EU bodies. Could the could 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 is an associate membership of the common fisheries policy something that might be might be imaginable or or, or preferable? I mean, negotiating an entirely separate deal surely is going to be a, a huge amount of work. I think I think the crucial dis, uh, d- decision is about where future management decisions are made, the institutional arrangements. Um, and I think that will be um, outside and separate from the common fisheries policy. Um, it will be bilateral or trilateral um, agreements. Um, trilateral, where Norway's involved in Western waters, mm. not, not so much trilateral. It would be EU and Norway sitting down at the table. There may be um, certain technical measures, uh, technical conservation measures that we all want to take across um, uh, and other aspects of the common fisheries policy. But I think the decision-making will be entirely separate and I think we would be desperately disappointed and regarded as a betrayal if we, uh, after leaving uh, the EU, were still tied into the decision-making processes of the common fisheries policy. Hmm. Fiona, you wanted to come in. We're talking as if the UK um, already sort of operates a, a national fleet, you know, looking for our national quota. Um, but in actual fact, uh, the UK's uh, fishing industry is already very international. Uh, so, for instance, uh, we have a lot of the UK's quota is actually owned uh, by fishermen from other countries. Um, there's a, a trade in quota uh, where fishermen in the UK can actually sell their quota to people overseas um, and they need never go out in a boat. They're called the, the slipper skippers. <laughs> um, and in fact, when we look at the, um, at the quota for England, uh, we find that two-thirds of the entire fishing quota is controlled by just three large companies from overseas. So it's, it's very international already. Um, and we we have a sort of romantic notion of uh, a British uh, fishing industry, but the British fishing industry is already an international one. Barry, 
We've been part of the single market for 20 years, um, where the uh, freedom of movement uh, of labour, the establishment uh, of uh, right of establishment has, has applied uh, the movement of capital as well. Um, and so, yes, there has been um, a, a degree of uh, non-UK ownership of, of UK uh, quotas and licences. You have to be very careful about comparing apples and oranges. Um, you can have um, a single uh, company owning enormous tonnages of uh, relatively low-value pelagic species. Sorry, which are pelagic species? Pelagic, are? like herring mackerel, okay. That, okay. horse mackerel, right. blue whiting, that sort of thing. Um, that has no uh, uh, real relation to the whitefish species, the high-value whitefish and shellfish species. So you've got to be very careful with those kind of statistics. Um, it, it's a reality that um, uh, non-UK ownership is um, part of the fabric of our industry. I don't think that makes uh, a difference when it comes to where decisions on future management will be made. And uh, it certainly wouldn't be uh, a reason why we would be in the uh, remain in the common fisheries policy. And of course, it's tied to the bigger picture of what is the UK's attitude to uh, foreign investment. Uh, you know, Britain's open for a business kind of um, uh, rhetoric on the one hand, um, and on the other hand, the, the reality of the ownership patterns that have developed over the last 20 years. So we'll see what happens with that. But I don't, I don't think um, that this has a bearing on where the decisions will be made. It, it will be that model that I described before, the bilateral, the trilateral, international uh, negotiations, annual fisheries agreements. And the, the model is already there. We already do that. The EU sits down each autumn with, uh, with, with Norway. Um, and agrees the, the total allowable catches for the next year, the shares and the access arrangements. And I think what's really interesting about that is that from time to time we fail to agree by Christmas time with, with Norway. Uh, and in those circumstances, we don't get access to Norwegian waters. Our boats don't get access to Norwegian waters. They don't get access to our waters. So it's, then it's a case mm. of who blinks. Uh, and usually in January, we come to some sort of agreement. But, you know, this is the leverage that um, the UK will have um, post-Brexit, a, a, a very strong lever, um, because... Uh, in terms of who fishes where, the European fleet fishes takes four times as much in value out of UK waters as the UK fleet takes out of EU. Uh, so it's a, it's a ratio of four to one. Countries like Belgium and um, bits of France like Normandy, uh, Denmark are highly dependent on access to UK waters. Um, so that's why I think there will, be, um, there will be change to the access arrangements, there will be change to the quota um, uh, shares. Mm. Um, but the, the principle is where the decisions are, are made. Andrew, do, does, do, you, do, you, do you agree with Barry basically that Britain has a, a, a strong card to play? This may be one of the may, may be one of the few areas of Brexit negotiations where where Britain actually has some strong cards to play. Yes, I, I do broadly agree with that. Um, I mean, in this magic phrase that you used about taking back control, I think that's Im implicit. Um, what we decide to do with that control, how we decide to share that management responsibility. But I think that's Barry's central point, that it would be us 
taking that decision mm. autonomously. Um, it's clear for all the reasons that we've already heard about that uh, fish stocks don't respect borders. There are different interests, uh, just as the uh, the catching side of the industry is internationalized to some extent. The same is true of the processing sector. Um, the, the, the concept of ownership of a company these days is a, a rather... Uh, outmoded one, uh, what matters is where the jobs are, where the markets are, where the value added is. And we have a, a, a strong and healthy processing industry in the UK that employs some 14,000 people, has a turnover mm. of over £4 billion a year. That, regardless of who the shareholders are or uh, the, the, the notional ownership of the country, that's of economic value to the UK. And we want to not only preserve that, but to build on it. And to reiterate my point, supply healthy, affordable, nutritious food to UK consumers. Um, the, the means by which these decisions are taken, I mean, clearly, this is going to be something that's going to feature very strongly in the negotiations. But the basic principle that um, since, and this is one of the, I don't want to spend too long on the history, um, but the extension, the generalised extension to 200-mile exclusive economic zones happened after we had joined the, the EU or the EEC as it was. We joined in 73. Iceland, I think, went in 75 to 200 miles unilaterally. That was then generalised under the UN Law of the Sea in 76. So we've never had a 200-mile UK limit. While that we've been in the EU and the CFP, while all that has been going on, when we leave the EU and the CFP, the default position is, as Barry has said, generalised now under international law that you have a 200-mile exclusive economic zone. And that changes the framework in which those decisions are taken. Um, I mean, clearly, there will be negotiation. People who have uh, at the moment benefit from access to our waters and particular shares will want to move as little as possible uh, from those positions mm. but that's what a negotiation is mm. so but the basic framework will change it is one area of the brexit negotiations where the position under international law is relatively clear-cut um and it's going to be a very interesting negotiation. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. Fiona, is it? Is it? I mean, are, are we right? Or is it? Is there even a possible, a, a possibly a danger in the fact that, that that fishing has been sort of built up into this this sort of vanguard for for, for Brexit and a, a kind of a totemic a totemic issue of Brexit? I think it's difficult because we have that the, the notion uh, of uh, people who were who were promoting uh, Brexit uh, before the referendum uh, was that, that you had these small-scale uh, British fishermen you know, who do a, a fantastic and a very dangerous uh, mm. job. Mm. There's a very high rate of mortality in, in fishing industry. Um, they do a very dangerous, difficult job um, and uh, they, they, you know, they, they come back bringing uh, very valuable food for our tables. And 
That is true. Uh, we have a lot of, of small small scale fishermen uh, like that. Um, but a lot of the fishing industry is actually dominated by very large vessels, very large players, and as I've said, very international. Um, so the the key here is trying to allow those small scale fishermen to flourish, um, because we know that that can be more sustainable as well, and that they can pursue more sustainable fishing practices. The problem is that if you leave the Commons Fisheries policy, um, even though you know it's a flawed policy, it does have some, some, some good aspects, mm. if you leave that and you start negotiating lots of different policies with lots of different countries, then this becomes very complex for your small-scale fishermen to, to deal with. Um, and that this leaves the small-scale fishermen with more uh, red tape, more regulation, uh, more difficulty, more confusion over what and where they can catch, and so on. So that's the difficulty. That's what we have to try and avoid. Barry, could could, could the alternative to the CFP be, be more complex? And, and the other question I suppose I want to ask really is, are you confident that you're going to get what the British fishermen are going to get what they want? Do, 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 do you feel that you have the backing of of the government in, in, in what you're asking for? It's difficult um, to see how uh, alternative arrangements um, would be more complex than the common fisheries <laughs> policy. Um, having um, lived with it in its various forms, uh, it, it, is, it is not a functional system. And despite the fact that there's been some elements of reform towards regionalization, there's also been movements in the opposite direction towards co-decision process which, that has made uh, changing things uh, practically impossible. Even when everybody has agreed that uh, things are going wrong, like with the COD recovery plan, scientists were telling us this, um, administrators uh, within the Commission and in the member states and certainly the industry were all telling us we need to change direction. We're still in it. It's uh, so impossible to, to get the super tanker to change direction once it's in law. We need a much more adaptive, responsive um, management regime, and I'm pretty confident that that's what we'll get after we leave the common mm. fisheries policy. So it's hard to see that it would be more complex. I see... Um, Brexit is providing an opportunity for small-scale vessels. I mean, the uh, most of the small-scale vessels uh, in the country are in the in the bottom half. Um, that that that's just a fact. And uh, in terms of quota shares, that's where we've done worst um, in the Channel, Celtic Sea, Irish Sea, Southern North Sea, and um, that's where I would um, expect. Um, rebalancing of the quota shares. The, the, the statistic that I gave you earlier that the, the, the French get 84% of the channel cod, it's small-scale vessels that have borne the brunt of that, uh, and a rebalancing would have direct benefits for the small-scale fleets. So, um, no, I, I, I don't see... Um, additional threats. I see opportunities in this for the small-scale yeah, How much vessel. do you think the British catch might progress? Um, under your ideal deal? Yeah, well, we would love to know, and the scientists are working on uh, this principle of zonal attachment. In other words, what are the resources in our waters? What are the resources in uh, EU mm. waters? And there are different ways of cal and how much do calculating they move? <laughs> and how much do they move. But what we're pretty, I mean, the, the, the catch statistics where uh, the EU fleets are taking about four times as much in value suggests that um, we are 
well short in our uh, if 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 there was a move towards uh, away from uh, the EU way of sharing quota, which is called the principle of relative stability, to a different principle, the, the principle of zonal attachment, basically what are the resources in each of our waters, um, there would be a huge difference. It, it varies stock by stock. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, we're pretty confident that we'll be a, a lot better off with that rebalancing pro- process. On your second question about um, how confident are we, well, we have to be worried um, because fishing, as you said in your introduction, is a small uh, industry, tiny really, in economic terms, but huge politically and symbolically. I think just the way the chips have fallen coming out of the general election, um, it strengthened our uh, our hand. Um, we we have a Secretary of State and Fisheries Minister that, that are uh, very clear in uh, what they want out of Brexit and it's pretty much aligned with what we want. Um, you now have something like 13 or is it 15 um, uh, conservative MPs in Scotland that weren't there before that are t- signed up to the same kind of vision. Uh, the DUP in Northern Ireland, similarly, um, we've been working closely with the Labour Party as well. And you know, I, d- I don't see um, political opposition within the UK coming from here. So it's about keeping our uh, position well up in, mm. uh, in, the, in the priorities. But we're not... Um, we're not stupid. We we realise, you know, when City of London and immigration, these big issues come in, um, that we're economically small beer. Um, but we are hopeful that we have the um, the political support now to get what we should have had all along. Um, and I, uh, I think that Andrew explained it very well. Um, had we been an independent coastal state, um, we would have had a very different fishing industry. We wouldn't have seen the decline in the um, coastal communities that we've we've seen and here's an opportunity to redress that Andrew Fiona final word um, is fishing going to be a, uh, a a very small cog in the in the big well, Brexit I think as, as Barry has said and I think you yourself in your introduction it is a totemic issue um i'm tempted to say all human life is there it's not just an economic issue it's not just about employment or regulation it touches on sovereignty it touches on our history as an island nation and all the stuff that that goes with that so it has a political dimension which is out of proportion to its economic significance how that plays in what's going to be a hugely complicated process of negotiation involving uh, fundamental change to a relationship we've had for over 40 years with an increasing number of other member states. I mean, I'm old enough to remember uh, when it went from six to nine and progressively, Mm. and we're now at 28, they don't all fish. um, But nevertheless, it's going to be enormously complicated so it's, we're in for a very interesting several months ahead to see where this ends up. I'm sure that's the least we can say. Fiona, a, a final word? Well, fishermen are the only uh, people in the country who go beyond our, our land borders uh, to capture a shared resource. Um, and uh, the issue there is that is is one of management, but it's also just of physical management because you can end up, even, even in the state we're in at the moment with a common fisheries policy, you still end up with frequent standoffs between fishermen from one country, fishermen from another, out in the high seas. So we may see more of that and we hope that we can manage that. Well, 
that's about it for this week. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. And if you'd like to review the pod and be in with a chance of featuring in our podcast weekly column, then do email podcasts at theguardian.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, so do get involved. We always like to hear from you. Thank you to our guests, Andrew Kike, Barry Dees, Fiona Harvey. The producer is Rowan Slaney. I'm John Henley, and this was Brexit Means. Thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 